This evening's reading is Genesis 1, verse 26, to chapter 2, verse 3, which is on page 1 of the Church Bibles. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. In every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath for life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the whole host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray together. Our dear Father, please speak to us tonight through your word, for our encouragement. This is our prayer. It is our expectation because it is your word we turn to and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please have your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and following. And as well as that, there are some notes on the back of the service sheet. It's really important that we know what the, when we study the beginning of any Bible book, that we know what the book is there for. And that's perhaps even more the case with a book like Genesis. Genesis chapter one is part of the whole book of Genesis. And the purpose of the book of Genesis is to give God's people confidence that he will save them. And as the book unfolds, uh, the purpose of the writer to give God's people confidence that he will save them is by telling them the story of humanity, God's creation of humanity, then the rebellion of humanity, then God's grace in calling a people through succeeding generations. That's the purpose of Genesis, to encourage God's people. And the purpose is reflected in the structure of the book. The book is divided into 10 sections, and section one begins at chapter two, uh, verse four. Just glance at that in your Bibles. Chapter two, verse four. This uh, heading occurs 10 times through the book. Section one proper, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That phrase, these are the generations, is the section heading that occurs 10 times in the book. And so that leaves us with chapter one through to chapter two, verse three, which uh, we um, looked at last week as a whole and suggested it is a prologue to the whole book. And the purpose of the prologue Remember, the purpose of the book as a whole is to give God's people confidence that he will save them. The purpose of the prologue is to give God's people confidence that God will save us because he is the creator God. And it's like a big, big uh, jolt and boost of confidence that we can have in anything that God promises because he is the God who created us. Uh, everything. 
Now, the prologue, as we saw last week, is a beautifully constructed text describing God's perfect creation. God is the creator. God created through his word. He spoke and there was. And the emphasis in the text, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 as a whole, is on these foundational, fundamental principles. It does not elaborate further on precisely how or how long it took. Now, our focus this evening is a little bit of chapter one, God's creation of humanity. The first point, you see it on the sheet that I want us to just uh, not miss, not miss the wood for the trees, is that God created humanity. Now, that's a massive worldview claim, but it's so important. God created humanity. We know that from creation itself. The creation, even in a fallen world, reveals the creator. But we know it primarily because God has revealed it to us through his word, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, which we believe in as the word of God because the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are attested to and affirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ. God created humanity. Consider the alternative worldview that as human beings, along with the rest of the cosmos, we were not created. The alternative worldview to God created humanity is that we were not created. We might call that accident or accidentalism, a worldview that everything in this world is the result of no creator or no guiding hand or no intelligent design. But rather, and this is the quote of someone who understands these things much better than me, rather the coincidental collocation of atoms and then impersonal scientific processes plus time, plus chance. Impersonal processes plus time and plus chance. Now, we might consider that theory with, for example, sharks. It's interesting. How did a hammerhead get its hammerhead? Was it impersonal processes plus time plus chance? Now, that's interesting but it does not affect me or you personally. So let's make it personal. Is a human being, are you am I impersonal, plus time, plus chance? That matter without mind produces language and logic. Or that matter without mind creates in us conscience, conviction about right and wrong. So when a football crowd riles against the decision of the referee, is that our innate and instinctive sense of justice or injustice? Or is it impersonal plus time plus chance? that our rational, moral, and spiritual and creative capacity is impersonal plus time plus chance. And to push it to its furthest extreme, and that we are as human beings or our joys and our sorrows, ambitions, loves, identity, no more than a vast assembly of nerves or molecules or bits, whatever the smallest is, we are merely survival machines or not, blindly programmed to survive until we die, all alone at the mercy of a pitiless universe. And one day, the machine that is our body will break down and we will be buried or burned and forgotten. 
Now, either I or Roger would be delighted and happy just to, there's big things here, to dialogue with you afterwards, if you're not a Christian especially. But I think the alternate worldview to there being a creator God is that there is no creator. And we are not created. And that we are a product of stuff and impersonal and time and chance. And God's word says, and if you're not a Christian, just consider, even if perhaps you do not believe what God's word says, how much better it is. God says, no, 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 don't, don't believe that. God says, you are created in my image. And the difference between stuff plus impersonal plus time plus chance and being made in the image of almighty God is as Vast a difference as you can imagine. Now, look with me at the text in front of us in detail. And the text itself is carefully written and very persuasive. The first point, God created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. Pinnacle as in the summit or the most important thing, the top now, the author of Genesis signals that in a number of different ways, that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. The repeated phrase that runs through the creation account, let there be, so let there be light, and so on and so forth, we see that in verses 3, 6, 9, 14, and 20, and 24, let there be, let there be. Let there be, all of a sudden, the formula is broken. Not let there be, but let us make. And the idea, if we listen to this, like an elaborate, constructed text that describes God's perfect creation, we're just listening, let there be, let there be, let there be, and all of a sudden, in God's word, let us make. And our heads come up. We realize that this is the point that God's word is describing us whose heads are raised. Second clue, the verb translated in our Bibles, create, which is the Hebrew verb bara, which means created out of nothing, is used sparingly throughout the creation account. It is used, for example, in verse 1. Just glance back at verse 1 as the overarching principle. In the beginning, God's created, the word bara, created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. It's such a, a special word. But in verse 27, it is used three times. So God created bara, man, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then notice that God's assessment of his creative work at the end of the sixth day is different from the other days. Throughout the creation account, we read that God, observing his creation, saw that it was good. God looked at what he had done, and it was good, it was good, it was good, for example, verse 10 and the end of verse 12. But at the end of the sixth day, after his creation of humanity, we read verse 31, and if our head was not raised up by let us create, our head will be raised up by God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. Other signals in the text, the length of the account of the sixth day relative to the other parts of the creation narrative, twice the length of each of the other days. 
And I guess most obviously, if you think of the image of the pinnacle or the peak or the summit, the high point, the creation of humanity is reserved as the last word or the last day of God's creative work. When humanity is created, God's work of creation is done. And so chapter 2 and verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. In other words, when God had spoken into being his perfect creation and when he had put humanity at the heart of it, God had finished the work that he had done and he rested. Perfect rest as he observes his perfect creation. Or to paraphrase using our heading, when God had created humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, he was done. And it is clear from the text that God created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. Now, God has, and this is, I guess, by way of application or implication, God has a very high view of humanity. He has a high view of all that he has created. God's creation was all perfect, but humanity is the pinnacle. And so we are to care for and value animals but they are not humans, apart from Labradors, <laughs> small black puppies. But they're not, though, are they? They're not humans. They're not humans. In the Western world, perhaps sometimes you'd be persuaded to think that they are. And they matter as much as humans. They don't. Now, God created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. How is that expressed? God did not just say that humanity is the pinnacle of his creation. He did not just make the point by putting it at the end of his creation account, reserving the last word for humanity. God created humanity as the pinnacle of his creation, encapsulated in an extraordinarily powerful and moving statement repeated three times in verses 26 and 27. Let's read these important verses um, afresh. Verse 26 Then God said, let us make uh, man, that uh, is the word Adam, it's a generic word for humanity, let us make humanity in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, Adam, a generic term for humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Plural, them. Now that's an extraordinary phrase and statement that carries massive significance. God created humanity in his image, in his likeness, to be like him. Now let me just pause there. And almost always when we gather together as a church family, and like every church family that gathers together or people listening online, some of us will feel just a thousand miles away from the dignity of a statement like that, that God created humanity in his likeness to be like him. Now, 
It's important when we study Genesis 1 not to get into Genesis 3 too fast. We are not living in the world of creation. We are living in the fallen world. But the world of redemption is to restore this, to put it back. So let's not, let's not lose the extraordinary impact of this statement that God created us to be like him, to share in his godness in all sorts of ways. Now, there are many things in the Bible as a whole about what it means to reflect the image of God in humanity, but I want us to focus on what Genesis focuses on. Five things. First, God created humanity as relational beings. God created us for relationships. Now notice the detail again, and it's all there in the text, just in the detail, verse 26. Then God said, let us, plural, us, make man, humanity, in our image. Just notice these little words, us and our. Let us make humanity in our image. The us and the our are not referring to humanity. They are referring to God. Who are the us and the our? God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. What people refer to as the Trinity. Now, we are not given an explanation or elaboration on this in Genesis 1. The point being made is that God in his very nature, in his very being, the God who ever has been and who ever will be is relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that divine relational nature, that divine relational capacity is reflected supremely in humanity. We are relational beings. One of my Bible commentaries said, we are relational animals. No, we're not. We are relational human beings. So often, We want to, even when we write, to to push humanity down the created order. We are relational humans at two levels. First, created for a relationship with God, to worship Him, to have fellowship with Him. Humanity is unique in this regard. Animals do not have souls. They cannot worship God. They cannot enjoy fellowship with God. They are his creatures, but they are not humans. And second, God also created us for relationship with one another, with our fellow humanity. And animals do not have relationships with one another of the like or of the order that humans have capacity for. God created humanity for relationship with him, for fellowship with him. God created humanity for relationship with one another, for fellowship with one another. Now let's pause and take a deep breath. All our instincts, all my instincts, are to face up to the fact that this is just not how it is. Because our relationship with God is not perfect and our relationship with each other is far from perfect. Some of you, many of you here in this room or listening would have suffered in relationships with your fellow human beings. 
And we need to embrace that for a moment and then do two things with it. We need to look back to Genesis 1 and say that is not how God created humanity to be. And then with our other eye, we need to look to Jesus Christ in whom he has renewed, remade that image in humanity. In the life of a local church, where we know and love one another, to speak in the realm of Genesis 1 is not insensitive pastorally because we know and love one another and share and bear one another's pain. It is to speak in the realm of raising our affections for our God and for our Savior who in our pain will say to us, I understand. And I have come into your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, part of that relational dimension. And I am making you new again. And in your pain, I am comforting you and helping you and reassuring you. And if your relationships humanly have broken down, then I have brought you into another family, my family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've given you a local expression of that on the earth where you are loved and valued. Second, God has created us as rational beings. Just a a little uh, comment. So in last week, the comment that stands out when you read it is, and he made the stars. Here, there's a little comment in verse 28. And God said to them. God speaks to us. He reasons with us. And we can speak to him. One of the most wonderful aspects of God's creating humanity is that he speaks to humans. He reasons with them. He talks with them. And one of the most wonderful things about the redemption, the renewal that we have in Jesus Christ, the first word that comes out of our converted hearts is Father. We speak to him what dignity, what worth he affords us as humans. Animals, we're told, can communicate with one another, which they can. Whales signal to one another through a range of tone and pitch. Seven-week-old puppies cry all night. You know, when you listen to one of these nature programs, and they are powerful programs because they make you think there must be a God to create these things but a whale issuing some kind of tonal cry that is echoed, amplified through the the, the water of the oceans is nothing compared to the conversation that any of you will have with a person next to you tonight. Nothing, nothing like it. Or the conversation between two toddlers. Our ability as humanity with language, our ability to reason, sets us apart from the rest of creation. God created humanity in his image Third, he created humanity, male and female. Let's read verse 27 again. So God created humanity, generic, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, that is humanity, generic, male and female. He created uh, them. The world in which we uh, live would be a far, far 
poorer, paler reflection were it not for male and female, men and women. Now let's lean over the parapet again. And to those of you for whom that is so very hard, what you have suffered from is not God's creation, but humanity's rebellion and rejection of him. And as a man or as a woman, if you have suffered at the hands or at the tongue of a fellow human being of the opposite sex, as many have, or the same sex, that does not rob you of the blessing you can be and are to your fellow humanity. And with Jesus Christ living in you by his spirit, that is both healing and fashioning and changing and comforting and grace and more grace and more grace and more grace. God created humanity as male and as female, and they are 100% equal. How do we know? Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal. And the us that is a quality in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, is poured out into humanity that are male and female, equal but different, equal but different. Father, Son, and Spirit, equal but different. Men and women, equal but different. And created by God as complements to one another, one with the other. Now, fifthly, God created humanity in his image to be responsible. Just look back again at the text, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Literally, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God is the lone sovereign. He has dominion over all things. That is who God is. And that aspect of God, his dominion, his rule, is what it means to be human. That in bearing God's image, and we're talking humanity here, women and men, humanity is given as the image bearers of God responsibility to those who are at the pinnacle of God's creation, is given the, the highest responsibility, that is to rule over God's World, the only, the only caveat is under God. That is never in question. God has his vice regents, but he is the regent.
Now, you may remember last week when we looked at the whole chapter, creation is described as God forming and filling the earth. Days one to three, he forms. Days four to six, he fills. Forming and filling, that is the creative work of God. And the mandate to rule given to humanity is as an extension of that. It is about forming and filling. We are to continue God's creative work of forming and filling. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, don't allow your mind and heart to jump to Genesis 2, which is still in the realm of God's perfect creation and conclude that that only means a man and a woman being married and having children. That is fused in redemption. And Roger alluded earlier to the privilege and the New Testament speaks again and again and again of the privilege and high calling of singleness. The mandate to fill the earth is picked up and expressed in the New Testament by Christ as seeing men and women and boys and girls come under the rule of the king. That's how their humanity is restored. That is how redemption works itself out in the world. And you see, the devil's tactic, even in a close and a loving church like this, is to rob some of you of the worth of this and the redemptive power of God and Jesus in this. Do not let him. Let him instead overwhelm you with a sense of his goodness in creation and his restoration, his remaking of us in redemption. We are to be responsible for the earth. As one writer puts it, God is the creator. The human beings are the cultivators. We have a mandate to steward the earth's resources, to make this world as good as it can be to work. It is no surprise that our planet falls apart when people turn away from Jesus Christ as their king. It's, that's the reason. And as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we mustn't be inarticulate about stuff like the planet we live in. We don't sell out that important issue to others. The disintegration of our planet cries out for humanity's need. And remember that Jesus Christ promises not just to restore the shattered image in humanity, but to restore the shattered image in the planet in a new creation. But the planet will not be remade. Or there will be no progress of any significance in human history until people's hearts are changed. I think one of the most powerful speeches at the COP, I think we had a 27 now, COP 26 in Glasgow was um, Sir David Attenborough, who, who spoke with passion about the planet. And he appealed to people and said, our hearts must be changed. And that's through Jesus Christ. Now, that's what it means to be created in the image of God, creation, the rest of the Bible story, and I've alluded to this a little more than I intended, but just out of love and concern for us as people who have been impacted by a fallen world. The rest of the Bible story is about putting it all back together again and that work of restoring the broken image in our lives, in my life, in your life, and in some of your lives.
No, no human being could fix the damage. No church truly can stand with you in that pain. But the Son of God can and does. Now, reflecting on some current issues as Christians as we finish, why are we doing this? Well, we wrestled with this over this week. Should we do this? Should we not do this? Because the danger is we lose sight of Genesis 1. But equally, we live in this world where these issues are discussed and wrestled with. Let me pick up, as we so often do, what happened in church this morning. God very often, uh, in his remarkable ways, fuses together two Bible texts. So here is Jesus before Pilate. What have you done, Pilate said. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the... My kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate said, you're a king. Jesus said, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and this purpose I have come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, just capture what that is saying. The kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. Jesus came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And as Christians, we are in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is our king. It is to him that we give our allegiance. And as such, we listen to and obey his word. And we should not expect the kingdom of this world either to listen to or obey his word. We should not be surprised or shocked when they don't. We should not call them out. Void of an understanding that unless Jesus Christ is your king, you will think because you cannot help it in the realm of the kingdom of this world. If you are of the kingdom of this world, your worldview is going to be very different. You cannot help it. And so what is happening in our context is simply a shift from abnormal times where the culture was nominally Christian to normal times when the kingdom of God and its values are different from the kingdom of the world and its values. Let me immediately change the word different to distinctive and get onto the front foot. Think of it like this. The Bible encourages us to do so. The kingdom of God and its values are distinctive in the kingdom of this world and its values. Let me focus it even more. A Christian church like Chalmers, not living out of the world, but living distinctively, not differently, distinctively in the world, our primary responsibility must be to proclaim Christ the king and his kingdom, so that people are brought into the kingdom of Christ and their minds are renewed and their worldview is changed. That does not mean that we do not speak into the kingdom of this world, but we do so with wisdom. We do so with wisdom. And what is the wisdom with which we need to speak not ever, and this is the biggest danger, not ever to compromise on the truth that Jesus has revealed to us in his word. That is a fatal mistake for the church to make. Do not ever compromise on the truth, but speak the truth graciously in a measured, ironic way to people whose worldview, because they are not of the kingdom of God, is totally different. Speak the truth graciously in a measured, ironic way, not least to protect the right to hold a Christian worldview in our culture. And as our first priority, to proclaim Christ. 
don't know if you saw or have had that uh, video shared with you of the Member of Parliament in Westminster this week who didn't speak the Christian worldview on this issue or that in Westminster. He just spoke the gospel. It's a different way of speaking into this world. To speak the gospel and therein to proclaim a different way, a better way, a better worldview, God's way, God's worldview. To proclaim it, to live it as distinctive communities of faith, and trust that God in his gracious mercy will open people's blind eyes to see and believe in Jesus and listen to his word and live in allegiance to him as their king. And that is not a weak stance. That takes tremendous courage. Weakness is compromising or withdrawing. It takes great courage to speak the truth graciously like Jesus did before Pilate who proclaimed him innocent and yet condemned him to death. Now, why have I spent our time on the current issues not talking about the current issues because the way in is to talk about how we speak about them. What are they? The worth of humanity. There are many things in our culture, for example, about the poor in this country, that as Christians, we need to not sidestep or feel that we shouldn't speak into. That's where Jesus is, where he would be. The dignity and worth of everyone. As Christians, we don't simply need to focus on the issues where we cannot speak with a positive or at least be heard to speak with a positive voice. The worth of humanity, the sanctity of human life, the beginning and end of life. I think I've said this to you before. One of, I'm just a light-hearted dog comment. I've been with a lot of people as they die, and you'll only understand this if you're a pet lover. I've only been with one of God's creatures when it was euthanized. It's a dog. And all I could think about was that's what people want to do to people. And our reaction to that as Christians is not to, not to get on a Christian blog and argue our case, but just to be brokenhearted and prayerful and compassionate and ironic. Or God made humanity male and female. And there's what's become a massive issue in our culture and in our time. How do we speak into that? With truth and with grace. And trust that in the progress of some of that legislation in public life. Things will go too far. Too far. And people who aren't Christians will say there's something wrong. And restraint will return to our culture. God made you and I men and women. We trust him, trust his design. 
and yet share and bear the pain of those for whom that is a huge struggle. Last word, not on current issues. A long sermon for which I apologise. That's not the last word. I didn't have time to tell you that. It's an appeal and a last word. Please engage with one another on these matters. Talk and pray with one another. We do not listen to these issues in a silo. We are in a family. And if you ever wanted to know what speaking the truth in love was after a church service and praying with one another, well, here it is. It was important tonight that we did not avoid difficult issues, but most of all, we are here tonight to hear Genesis and God's word. And the last word, let's go back to the text. God created man, humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And verse 28, God blessed them. God blessed them. God pronounced his benediction on humanity and no one else. And as we work through Genesis, we'll see how humanity rebelled against him, rejecting his rule, and the image of God in humanity was broken, not completely, not altogether, but fundamentally the mirrors cracked, shattered, and yet God in his mercy set about the plan of restoring humanity. And it doesn't take us long. Here we are in Numbers, part of the collection with Genesis. What is God says? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. If you're here tonight and you really need to hear that, let the words of creation reiterated to the people of God as they stood on the cusp of the promised land. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. How did the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 begin. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. You are blessed. How does every New Testament letter end? Grace and peace and mercy be with your spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Father, thank you for speaking to us tonight through your word for our encouragement. Help us now to focus on Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, who through his death and resurrection has saved us and restored that broken image. And we pray in his name. Amen.